It is again a privilege of high order indeed that we each have this beautiful afternoon, this first day of this week, to come together to offer praise and worship and honor and homage to the great God of heaven who not only has fashioned and made all that you and I are privileged to see, but even you and I as human beings with the capability to serve and to love and to joyously worship Him in a way that's acceptable. As is often mentioned, certainly we're blessed not only with our regular membership, but visitors as well, and we're thankful for each and every one that's present. And perhaps we each can be strengthened and edified in the most holy faith, 2 Peter 1 verse 1, as we proceed through the worship service this afternoon. We began a two-part series of studies this morning in which we turned our attention to some evidences for the inspiration of the Holy Word of God. And on that occasion, we had looked at some of the features that might well be summarized in the following way. We saw that there were three evidences that we had considered this morning. First of all, in the interest of 2 Peter 3.16, or 2 Timothy 3.16 rather, we remember that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. We quickly appreciated the fact that there were various evidences that the Scriptures exhibit that leads one to appreciate the fact that it is the Word of God. We noted that there were other books, oddly enough, that also claimed to be from God. And quite often the question might well be asked, are there specific characteristics, properties if you will, that the Bible exhibits that one can certainly have greater understanding and belief in its inspiration, things that the other books do not have. We noticed there were three this morning. The unity of the Bible. Written by 40 men over a period of 1,600 years, the Scriptures themselves nonetheless written so far apart in time by so many different authors of different backgrounds, nonetheless, it is a unity of great order indeed. None of them were such that they in fact veered far aside from the message of redemption. We see that unity is impressive. We also saw the brevity of it. Many instances, the Scriptures are not such that it seeks to satisfy our curiosity. It presents the truth and often does so briefly, but nonetheless with enough detail that you and I can appreciate the thoroughness and power of it. Thirdly, the descriptions to be found therein. The Bible tells the truth about those who are its characters. They're complimented for that which is noble and godly. They were rebuked for that which was sinful in their life. We close the lesson with another aspect of those descriptions, appreciating the greatness of the fact of what we might expect from a human perspective would never have been in it, but yet it's there. Wonderful indeed as those ideas were, let's look at two more evidences for the inspiration of the Bible this evening. Theonoustos again means God-breathed. What are some other ways that you and I can see so clearly the handiwork of God's writing, the Holy Word of God? May I suggest the first one to consider this evening is, in fact, one that might well be headed accuracy. I suspect even this morning our minds may have raised to the consideration of this point, but now let's give a more diligent consideration of it, the accuracy of the Bible. In fact, would you and I not expect this? If God, in fact, wrote this book, would we not expect it to be absolutely free from error? There should be no contradictions within it. There should be no discrepancies. Nothing that would lead one to say, aha, there's an obvious mistake. If God wrote it, it ought not have any mistakes in it. 
easy enough to appreciate then that this is a point worthy of deep consideration as you and I look more carefully at, in fact, the accuracy of the Word of God. When it comes to religious matters, you and I realize those are not checkable by us in the sense that you and I can't, for instance, venture to heaven, verify that it exists, and then come back and tell everyone. That is beyond the capability of what you and I can do in the mortal flesh. But may I submit, the Bible in its 66 books is filled with references to things that are checkable. Things that one can check by way of history, geography, science, politics, or other subjects. I wonder, do all of them check in good favor? Or does one find mistakes? I've listed a few considerations that you and I should begin to look at with some degree of briefness, of course. First of all, look with me at science, if you would. We each know the role that science often plays in the human manner of thinking. Discoveries are set forth that are ultimately used, we would hope, to improve the human condition, to aid individuals in their allotment upon this earth. But in the course of those discoveries, isn't it amazing? Oftentimes, what knowledge was replaced with those discoveries? I've listed two. Consider with me briefly, if you would, about what exists in the sky if you point a telescope in the direction basically to the North Star. We understand Polaris is the North Star, but in the vicinity shortly around it, one finds a relative absence of any other major stars. In fact, astronomers for much of the several decades thought that there were basically no stars around Polaris. Oddly enough, of course, that wasn't known until humans invented the telescope. I wonder then how Job knew it. In Job 26, verse 7, centuries and centuries ago, Job declared that there's an emptiness in the north. How did Job know that? Galileo didn't invent the telescope until the year 1609, 2,000 years after Job wrote. How did Job know that? May I submit to you that God must have told him. In that same verse, Job makes this remarkable statement. You and I might well appreciate, what does the earth rest on? What does it hang on? The ancient Greeks and some other civilizations consider that that which holds the earth up is the fact that it rests on the back of various animals. There were some who thought the earth rested on the back of a turtle. Others on the back of various other kinds of animals, may I submit. When you and I have seen those astronauts turn their camera back, we don't see anything supporting the earth. May I ask, how did Job know it? In that same verse, he affirmed that the earth hangs on nothing. May I submit to you, the only way Job could have known that was for a power far higher than he to tell him. Job declared again, the earth hangs on nothing. Isaac Newton didn't set forth what you and I would call gravity until the middle of the 17th century, over two millennia following the time of Job. That's just one interesting thing that might be noted. How did these writers in the Word of God know scientific truth long before scientists discovered it? I've only listed these matters about physics, for example. One could list others from biology, chemistry, geology, as well as a host of others. This is just one idea to whet our appetite to see that when these gentlemen wrote the Word of God, they were superintended by a power and influence far higher than their knowledge by virtue of science at the time they wrote. God wrote this book. Venturing from science, let's consider history. 
We understand that our children are asked to study history. They often take a number of courses dealing with that subject, both U.S. history and abroad. Consider the following, if you would. The Old Testament in 1 Kings 16 makes a very bold and powerful declaration that there was an Israelite king named Omri. In fact, it is stated very matter-of-factly that Omri existed and he was the sixth king of ancient Israel. I wonder, what has the archaeologist been able to discover in the years since? I've listed some features and thoughts in the following way. The Old Testament declares that he was the builder of Samaria. I wonder what the archaeologist Spade discovered in the middle of the 19th century. Well, he discovered various artifacts, one of which was the Moabite stone that had long since been known before, admittedly, but also an obelisk called the Black Obelisk. And I wonder whose name was very clearly found on both of those objects. Omri, the king of Israel. Here was a secular evidence that fully verified and was in harmony with the declarations of the Old Testament. That should give all of us a wonderful sense of comfort in regard to the Bible. That was only one instance. Consider another. I've listed also geography. The Bible makes dozens and dozens of geographical references. When in Jeremiah 1 verse 14, the ancient prophet speaking, of course, for God declared that a pot shall boil over from the north, that boiling pot was to be none other than the Babylonians who would overrun Judah for her sinfulness. Where was Babylon geographically located with respect to Israel? Was it north? It was. Only one of dozens of other ideas where we see that every instance and every reference seems perfectly in harmony with what you and I can check on the map, what we can check from history, what we can check even from the annals of science. May I submit there are even somewhat minute references to human relation that are ever so impressive. In Acts 10 verse number 6, we find in that scene concerning Cornelius a reference that Peter was gone and fetched, if you will, and he was at that time residing with Simon a tanner. That takes on an added significance when we look at the last two verses of the previous chapter, Acts chapter 9. What was the occupation of Simon? He was a tanner, as noted. But he dwelt by the seaside. Does that make sense? Where did the, in the ancient times a tanner have to live? where there was a tremendously large supply of water. For you see, water was necessary in the tanning of hides. It makes perfect harmony, doesn't it? That's exactly what one would have expected. And yet, Luke doesn't draw any special attention to it. It's just a simple fact that's buried in the heart of that wonderful book of Acts. While we're speaking about the book of Acts, I might suggest to you the following set of ideas. There is no book in the Bible that is more easily checkable than the book of Acts for the following reason. Luke was a historian of the highest order. Notice, if you may have done so in the reading of the book of Acts, some of the following statistics and features. In the book of Acts alone, in its 28 chapters, Luke makes reference to 32 distinct countries, 54 distinct cities, 95 named people with personal names, and also nine Mediterranean islands. When you and I then open a map and seek to check these, not one mistake, not one has ever been found. 
all the individuals, all the cities, all the countries, all the islands are precisely named and located in ways that are in harmony with the record as it's revealed in that book. Impressive, isn't it? To make a statement like that leads me to also address the point that perhaps we have each already expected to come. This aspect, namely the accuracy of the Bible, is one element which is often rested in the mind of skeptics. And no wonder they have often been of desire to find errors somewhere within it. For indeed, if they can find any errors in the Bible, it would disprove it immediately from being the Word of God. The charges have come many, many times, and here's just three of them. If you consider with me the nature of the Hittites, the Hittites are mentioned many times in the Old Testament. I've listed two references, Genesis 23, verse 10, as well later as Joshua, chapter 11. The Hittite peoples, as often as they were mentioned, clearly the Bible supports the idea that it was an existent catalog or nationality of people. For centuries, that was considered to be a mistake in the Bible. There was not a single reference anywhere outside sacred literature that the Hittites ever existed. And for that reason, there were some who thus said, well, the Bible must thus be an error. There were no such people as the Hittites, and they even called into question much of the Old Testament. I wonder how they reacted when, in the middle part of the 19th century, the archaeologist Spade uncovered not only references to them, but the city that was the capital city of the Hittite Empire. If I can pronounce it properly, I believe it's Baghazqua. Not only did they find pieces that verified their existence, palaces, various cities, pottery, many things, and all thus led us to see the Bible had been right all along. The Hittites did exist. Only one instance where men often in their own thinking were mistaken because they trusted their own degree of knowledge when in fact the Bible was what was correct. Consider yet another. In Isaiah 20, verse number 1, there is a king whose name is very clearly provided. He was Sargon, the king of Assyria. However, there was a question about Sargon. In fact, this is so impressive. Sargon, in terms of the Assyrian kings, was not named anywhere outside the Bible. All notes to his existence had faded into history. For that reason, many, understanding that they had no secular references to Sargon, thought, well, here the Bible was obviously an error. They were well aware of the other Assyrian kings like Tiglath-Pileser, mentioned in the Old Testament, Shalmaneser III, mentioned in the Old Testament, but not one reference anywhere to Sargon outside the Bible. Given that they interestingly thought this was a mistake, I wonder how they reacted when in the year 1842, not only was there reference to Sargon found, even his palace was discovered with the archaeologist spade, and one more time the Bible was found to be vindicated. It was right all along. There was a king of Assyria named Sargon. He fell in the area of time between the others that were noted, but amazingly all references to Sargon had lapsed into history. Only the Bible declared the fact there was a Sargon and the Bible was correct. Perhaps a third evidence, a third example in this way, in the opening verse of Daniel chapter 5, another king is mentioned. This was a king of Babylon. His name was Belshazzar. 
in the Scriptures. He was the king when that interesting hand appeared and wrote on the wall and in fact rebuked him for much of the drunken debauchery of his life. Yet one more time, there was no reference outside the Bible to that man until we reached the year 1853. In fact, before that, for several, several decades, there were those who called into question the book of Daniel, claiming it could not be inspired, for here was an obvious error. There was never a Babylonian king named Belshazzar, according to them. Again, in 1853, things changed dramatically. In fact, a temple cornerstone was again uncovered by the archaeologist Spade, and I wonder whose name was recorded on the stone. It was none other than the very king, Belshazzar. He was a regent reigning over Babylon and fits in perfectly with both Nabonidus and Nebuchadnezzar. The Bible had been right all along. Perhaps it would not do any injustice at all to conclude this brief point in the lesson with that bottom statement. Today, no inaccuracies with regard to the Bible are known. Every aspect of both Old and New Testament, when it is possible to check it, has been found in perfect accord with what archaeology or science or politics, any other thing has been able to test it. The Bible is an accurate book. Doesn't that indicate that it is from God? Whether it touches subjects of religion, geography, history, science, politics, it is found to be correct in every regard and in every way. How wonderful that evidence is about the character of God's Word. It's believable in every aspect. Our fifth point, in addition to accuracy and the three that we had considered this morning, may I ask you to consider yet another that is a powerful evidence to the correctness and the inspiration of the Word of God, the matter of prophecy. Let's devote the latter part of our lesson tonight, and in fact the closing part of it, to a discussion of the subject of prophecy. We will appreciate that in the Old Testament there are some 17 books of prophecy, commencing with Isaiah, terminating with Malachi. We know the last 17 books were in fact the prophetical books. Even in the New Testament, one book of prophecy exists, the book of Revelation. As we consider the role, though, that prophecy plays in the Bible, would it not be fair to make note of this? Not all prophecy is of the variety of type, that typically is appreciated by much of humanity. For example, many think that prophecy is nothing more than telling the future. Well, that's not exactly true. Prophecy, by the very firm nature of the word, simply means to bubble forth, to declare the words of God. And quite often those prophets' main message was to the people of their own day to repent and to serve God and to come back to Him, and to live in, a, in, an, in an appropriate fashion. Now indeed, a small part, roughly about 10% of all of the prophetical works of the Old Testament, did contain predictions specific, that is, about the future. It is that element of predictive prophecy that is astounding. You and I well know that humans do not know the future. None of us are able to stare into a crystal ball despite the television commercials and state what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next year, the next century. God has not given the human family that capability. With regard to prophecy, then, we immediately run into an amazing feature of evidence for its inspiration. If we find in the Bible statements made by individuals, specific statements, 
that we find in full fulfillment hundreds of years later, surely that would be a hallmark of the Bible's inspiration. In fact, I've listed a few just to get us started in our study on this point. I thought one of the most interesting features would be none other than Cyrus. I've often been rather amazed in the consideration of his appearance in the Old Testament. In fact, in Isaiah 44, as well as in the next chapter, Isaiah 45, the prophet Isaiah, writing roughly 750 years before the birth of our Savior, made the specific statement that a man named Cyrus will be the critical element in the releasing of my people from captivity. Now, obviously, I've summarized, but that was the point that the prophet Isaiah declared. He called by name the man who would have a critical role in the releasing of God's people from captivity. Two hundred years later, we find that by that time, Babylon had risen and fallen, and the Persian Empire at that point was at the height of its ascendancy. When Persia conquered Babylon, the king was none other than a man named Cyrus, and he made a decree, as we read in the book of Ezra, to allow God's people to leave captivity. Now ponder that with me a moment. Here was a prophet, a man named Isaiah, who long before Cyrus was ever born, called by name the man who would ultimately release God's own people from captivity. Isaiah couldn't merely have guessed that. Isaiah couldn't have had some means by which he could have prognosticated the name Cyrus. God told him what that man's name would be. As an interesting historical side note, it has often been recognized that when Cyrus ascended the throne, he was made aware of Isaiah's prophecy, and there are some who believe that that was a part of his decision to allow God's people to leave captivity. For Isaiah had called his name two centuries earlier under the weight of that prophecy. Cyrus, in fact, did allow God's people to return, and the book of Ezra is a testimony to that point. Consider yet another in Daniel chapters 2 and 7, that marvelous 12-chapter book unfolds before us the following set of ideas. One was in the course of a dream. Nebuchadnezzar saw this great image with a head of gold, a breast section and arms of silver, midsection and thighs of brass, lower leg section of iron, and the feet were part of iron and part of clay. When the time came that Daniel told what that dream meant, he said it represents four kingdoms, and they shall be in succession. Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. You're Babylon. Following you shall come a kingdom inferior to thee, and that shall be the kingdom of the Persians. Following that will be yet another kingdom, the Greeks. Finally, the kingdom of Rome. Question. In the annals of history, did those kingdoms succeed in order, as God had predicted through the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar as well as Daniel? Yes, they did. Now, how did Daniel know that? Did he guess down the stream of human history that these kingdoms would rise and fall? How did he speak so powerfully about Alexander the Great long before Alexander the Great was ever born? We each can see God told him those things. He didn't guess them. He wrote because the Holy Spirit guided him. Predictive prophecy is one of the most powerful evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. Those two only lead us to consider Jesus. I'm sure as we each know, the principal subject of the Old Testament's predictive prophecy is Jesus the Christ. 
as the Old Testament was unfolded by the power and providence of God, it spoke about the coming of one long into the future at that point. But the Old Testament revealed over 300 prophecies about Christ. 300. Question. How is it possible that those writers of the Old Testament could so specifically detail the life and works of Christ, in some cases over a thousand years before he was ever born? We know that that's beyond the capability of humans, per se. They had to be given that information. They had to be told it. I've listed only a sampling of the 300. Let's begin by asking, first of all, where was the Savior born? Now, we understand in that mobile, nomadic, ancient set of days, it was not unusual for people to travel about, like Jacob and Isaac and Abraham did. And yet, the little minor prophet Micah declared in Micah 5, verse 2, But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, is where the Savior, the one of God, would be born. And might we quickly suggest that even those of Herod's day in the New Testament knew that prophecy. In fact, when those wise men came and asked, where's the king of the Jews to be born in Matthew 2, beginning in verse 1, those scribes and those religious individuals said, according to Micah 5, verse 2, it'll be in Bethlehem, and it's there. Herod said, kill all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Herod believed what they said. They were aware of Micah's prophecy. And when we read in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and following, where did Joseph and Mary go, and where was it that the Savior was actually born? Bethlehem was not the hometown of Joseph. Yet, we remember that a decree had been given to enroll the people or take a census, and it was to the city of David that Joseph needed to go, and while he was there, Jesus was born. The Old Testament prophet Micah had been right all along. How did Micah know he would be born in Bethlehem? God told him. How about another one? We certainly appreciate that in the normal biological scheme, it is impossible for a baby to be born of a virgin. And yet, on two different occasions, the Old Testament had prophesied it. In Isaiah 7, verse 14, in the days of King Ahaz, Isaiah declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. The prophet Jeremiah, well over a century later, declared in Jeremiah 31, verse 22, that a woman shall compass a man. We look down the stream of time and find, did that occur? Though there are some who call that into question, we find in Matthew 1, verse 25, that Joseph did not know Mary until after Jesus was born. Jesus was born of a virgin. The virgin Mary in Bethlehem, just as the prophet had declared, that's only two of so many others that would follow. Let us can look at just a few others and what time permits us to do so tonight. Isn't it amazing in Hosea 11 verse 1, it was there declared that for a while he would live in Egypt. Now Jesus was born in Palestine. Did he ever live in Egypt? Hosea 11 verse 1 prophesied that he would. When we turn to Matthew 2, the closing two verses of that chapter, we find indeed, due to the threat upon his life from Herod and Archelaus, for a while he did in fact sojourn in Egypt with his parents. And of course, the time came that they left Egypt and dwelt in Nazareth. For a while he was in Egypt. Isn't that remarkable? Isn't it amazing how Hosea knew that? God, of course, had revealed it to him. God had told him. Consider yet a third one. And might I note that the specificity of this is utterly astounding. 
It's not that those prophets of the Old Testament made general statements that basically could be applied to anything. They called individuals by name. They stated specific cities. And in fact, even Zechariah declared that this king would ride on the, on the colt of a donkey and he would be proclaimed as king while in that position. Did Jesus ever do that? There's no indication he ever owned a donkey, but yet in Matthew 21... We find on that Sunday, that triumphal entry into Jerusalem, they in fact went and procured a donkey and a colt and placed Jesus upon it and strode palm branches in front of him as they pranced him into the city, declaring king was he. Zechariah had been right, and yet he wrote well over four and a half centuries before Jesus was ever born. How did Zechariah know that? Might we submit? It wasn't guesswork. God had told him as we consider other matters about the life of Jesus. Isn't it interesting in Psalm 41 verse 9, it was prophesied that he would be betrayed by a friend. Jesus only sojourned upon this earth about 33 years. In the matter of that sojourning, was he betrayed by a friend? We turn to the closing part of all of the gospel accounts. Luke 22 verse 3 is an example. And notice that Judas went and made arrangements with the chief priests and Pharisees to betray Jesus. Was Judas his friend? He was an apostle. How did the psalmist David know that a thousand years before Jesus was ever born? What guesswork, of course. God had told him. Predictive prophecy is ever so impressive. In addition to that matter about being betrayed by a friend, as far as the specificity, perhaps none surpassed this. For how much did Judas betray him? Thirty pieces of silver. Might I ask, how did Zechariah know, again, 450 years before Jesus was ever born, that the betrayal price would be thirty pieces of silver? And yet, Zechariah recorded it for us all along in Zechariah 11, verse 13. Should we not be humbled when we consider not only the accuracy, but in fact the predictive prophecy of the Word of God? No man could possibly have written these things and seen them come true centuries and centuries later. Consider yet another. As we focus attention on what else happened to Jesus, isn't it amazing the psalmist in Psalm 22 said that his hands and his feet would be pierced. Well, how did the psalmist know about crucifixion when by that point now the Roman regime had not come into the ascendancy? At that point, other kingdoms were sentencing and they didn't crucify. How did he know the psalmist that is? A thousand years before the Lord was ever born and well over 900 years before the Roman Empire was ever even established that this one would be crucified. And yet in Psalm 22, that is declared and we see it openly set forth for us in John 20, verse 25 when Jesus said to Thomas, See my hands and my feet. Interesting, isn't it? And all the more when we consider that even his garments were parted on the day of his crucifixion. The Old Testament, again, the psalmist in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, had prophesied it. And the Roman soldiers fought over and waged battle almost over the garments of Jesus. That part recorded for us in John nineteen twenty-three. As these specifics are outlined for us, it perhaps hastens us to consider his actual burial. We remember Jesus had himself stated in Luke 9 that he had not even where to lay his head. 
He certainly was not a rich man by the estimation of this world. He was not wealthy by the estimation of those around him. What then could it have meant when Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53 that he would be buried with the rich? How could that possibly come to fruition? Well, we remember that it did, specifically in the case of John 19.38 when Nicodemus, a rather wealthy individual along with Joseph of Arimathea, buried the body of our Savior, his corpse, fulfilling identically the prophecy of Isaiah over seven and a half centuries earlier. Perhaps the last two to be noted. Might I ask consideration of the resurrection? We understand how often the New Testament mentions it, but might we not forget the Old Testament did prophesy of the resurrection? Did Jesus then find himself resurrected in such a fashion as was in accordance to the prophecies made? Might I bring to your attention Psalm 16, verse number 8. That very text is of such great import and interest that it was quoted in the book of Acts and applied to Jesus. In that quotation, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. When Peter quoted that on the day of Pentecost as a part of that great gospel sermon, he applied that directly to the Savior, prophesying of his resurrection, and he was, in fact, resurrected. The amazing feature of that helps us see that that prophecy so long prior did find fruition in the life of Jesus. On that occasion, might we notice a somewhat in interesting point. Many of these prophecies are such that Jesus himself did not have control over their fulfillment. I might mention that on more than one occasion, that has been an allegation of some throughout the years. Well, Jesus knew the prophecies, and hence, he specifically rigged his life so that he would fulfill them. That isn't true. Did he have control over where Joseph and Mary were when he was born? Did he have control after his own death of the fact of the resurrection? Well, of course not. These prophecies were history written before their time. And they were written as accurately as if one was already there and had witnessed them. And that was God. For God is everlasting from everlasting. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2. The future is just as well known to him as the past. Perhaps our final one. What about the Lord's ascension to glory? It was prophesied in the Old Testament. In Psalm 24 verses 9 and 10. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. The psalmist thus dictated the fact that there would be an ascension when this great one would pass through the clouds, and in so doing would enter home into glory. The Lord did that in Acts 1 verses 9 through 11. When, with his apostles standing there watching, he ascended into the heavens, returning to the very palace of glory from which he had come. These prophecies found in the Old Testament are truly astounding and amazing when we note that predictive prophecy is an amazing evidence for the inspiration of the Bible. Over 300 times in relation to the Lord's life and work, every prophecy came to fruition. Many others, like Cyrus and the other things we had briefly noted earlier, all again fulfilled in proper order and at the proper time. It might be noted that some of those prophecies in the Old Testament, in fact, were dated in that it was told when they would be fulfilled. Though time would fail us tonight to look more interestingly at that one, 
Perhaps no greater one would be seen than in Daniel chapter 9. There it was told exactly when the Messiah would come. Did he come when Daniel said he would? He did. The features could go on and on as we could study for all night listing the predictive prophecies of the Old Testament that found their fruition in Jesus of Nazareth. But perhaps we've said enough to lead to these conclusions. We have looked today at the evidences for the inspiration of the Bible. And we've been reminded of the grandeur of this book. How that it is truly unique in the sense there is only one. There are no other books despite the claims of those who wrote them that are inspired like this one. We have seen the unity to be found in it. And we have in fact almost been amazed when we considered its brevity in uncanny ways. Thirdly, the descriptions how that it is always of truthfulness. This evening we've looked at its accuracy. Not only in matters religious in character, but even in terms of politics, history, science, geography, government, all of them, when it has been able to be checked, is found to be perfectly accurate. And finally, the matter of prophecy, especially predictive prophecy, how that history was written before its time. Friend, this evening, if the Bible is accurate and true in all these statements about science and politics and geography, and in every way, if we've been able to check it and have found it to be accurate, should we not then give credence to the fact that it's right on the religious statements too? When it says what a person needs to do in order to enter heaven, should we not accept that just as factually as we have accepted the others? Indeed, the Bible is accurate, even when it speaks in religious matters. And all who simply wish to go to heaven will not enter there. Many shall say to me, Lord, Lord... Have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Religious people were under discussion, and yet Jesus said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It seems as though there was a disconnect in their thinking. They thought they knew the Lord, but the Lord didn't know them. Friend, make sure of it. Jesus said, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Do you love the Lord tonight? Have you obeyed Him then in the initial acts of obedience to the gospel? If you have not done that, then recognize you must believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life, for they are what have separated you from Him. Confess His name verbally, and then be baptized for the remission of sins. Once you've done that, the Lord will add you to His church. You are then saved. You need not relate some special experience you've been in, that you have had. The Lord saves you then and there, Acts 2.47. If you have done that but have not lived faithfully to the calling of God, come back to that first love. We'd be honored to pray for you and with you that God would forgive those sins, remove them forever from His book of remembrance. Tonight, if we could be of assistance to you, put your trust and confidence in this book for it is inspired of God. And if we could be of assistance, will you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?